Welcome to the Sterling Foursquare Church Podcast. Our mission is to offer hope for the broken, lives that are thriving, the equipping of believers, and the launching of leaders. More info can be found at sterlingfoursquare.com. Thank you for joining us today. It was about um, five years ago that I had the opportunity to start working with our Foursquare um, denomination in the world of leadership development. And over the last five years, um, I've had the opportunity to work with a number of pastors and leaders um, from all over the nation, helping them to discover who God has created them to be and helping them to discern what their next season looks like. And then as they discern that next season, to help them to develop into that assignment. It's been such a joy and such an honor. And um, one of the resources that we use, one of the kind of... um, exercises that we use as we help them to discern what God is doing in their life is an exercise called the five highs and the five lows. And what it is simply is we invite them to look back at the story of their life and to um, discern what were the five highest moments of my life. High being mountaintop experiences, celebration points, uh, points where they experienced maybe great success or great celebration, maybe their marriage or the birth of a child or getting a dream job, all of those types of things. And writing those out and, and writing the top five experiences. And then on the flip side, to then look at the story of their life and to consider what were the five lowest moments of their life. Maybe moments where they experienced great failure or moments where they experienced great tragedy or great loss. Um, moments where it felt like the floor dropped out from under them and they, they had lost hope, you know. Um, and so they chart those out. And then we um, spend some time in prayer where we look back at that scope of their story and discern where was Jesus in each of those moments. Where was he in the highs? Where was he in the lows? And then with that reality, with that realization, then we have the clarity to discern where might God be leading us into the future. Because there's something about when you look back at the, the, maybe like an arrow being pulled back in your life, that you have discernment to know kind of the trajectory of where you're moving forward. When you kind of zoom out and look at the full scope of your life. And so I've had the opportunity to do that personally um, over the last five years, and um, there's been a lot of things that I've written on my storyline, but there's one particular moment for me that always stands out. And for some, it might not seem like a very like, significant moment, but for me and my story, it was, a, it was a major, major moment. And it was when I was 22 years old, and I had just graduated from college. Um, And it was actually a moment of great success and a high point right up next to a moment of great uh, failure or a low point. Because what happened for me is I graduated from college. It was this great moment of celebration. I I graduated. I had been in school for four years, and I got my bachelor's degree in um, biblical studies. I got my minor in music. I was credentialed as a four-square pastor, ready to go, ready to take the world for Jesus. And I didn't know what to do next. I was, I was totally lost. Um, it was like the, I had the whole world of possibility in front of me, all of these opportunities, but it was too, too much possibility. Have you guys ever been there? Where I, I felt paralyzed. I felt paralyzed and I felt lost and I didn't know what to do next. Up until that point in my life, like everything had been planned 
And you know, even for young people, you know, you go to preschool, you go to kindergarten, grade school, junior high, high school. I knew the Lord had called me to go to Bible college. I did that. But then there was like no plan. There was nothing written out for me to know what to do next. And I literally, like I was paralyzed. I was lost. I, I was um, disoriented. Um, it was a really, really hard season in my life for me. Have, have you ever been in a place like that before? A place where you felt like maybe the floor dropped out from under you, where you did not know what to do next. Sometimes those moments are brought about, like for me, a great success moment where um, you know, there's a high point, a celebration point in your life, but it seems like there's nowhere to go but down after it. Or sometimes those are brought about by tragedy and loss, where you feel like everything that you thought was gonna happen has suddenly shifted and it's suddenly different than everything that you had hoped for. We've all been in those places in our life at one point or another. Um, it's, it's a transition moment where things completely shift from what they once were to now something completely different. It's disruptive, it's confusing, it's disorienting because we don't know the way forward. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage um, in the book of John where the disciples were facing a very similar situation as that. So if you would um, get out your Bibles, we're going to open up to John 14. And if you have your phone or tablet with a Bible app, you're welcome to get that out as well. Um, but before we dive in, let's pray. Let's um, go before the Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. Um, we thank you that your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, and that you um, give us your word as a guide so that we know um, the way to go and we can walk in it, Lord Jesus. And so as we dive into your word today, we pray that you would illuminate your truth, Lord, that your voice, Holy Spirit, would be the loudest voice in this room, that you would speak exactly what needs to be spoken to each and every person, and that we would have the courage to respond and obey in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. So we have been in a sermon series called One Way Jesus, where we've been going through the seven I am statements of Jesus in the book of John. And the first week we looked at John 6, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And then we looked at John 8, where he said, I am the light of the world. John 10, he said, I am the gate. And then he said, I am the good shepherd. And then last week we looked at John 11, where he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Today we're going to look at the sixth I am statement of Jesus, which is found in John 14. But before we do, I want to set it up for you. And I'll just say this, sometimes when you um, address a text in scripture, you do like a deep dive into the text and you zoom in really, really close to the text. But today I want to almost take the opposite approach where we zoom out from the text and we look at the context it's set in and then zoom out Again, just like sometimes we do with the storylines of our life, okay? So we, you go with me on this journey? <laughs> okay, so we're going to look at the book of John. We're going to zoom out from this passage for a moment and look at where it's set in the book of John. So the book of John is a beautifully crafted gospel. It's written by, it says in the text, the author um, was the disciple that Jesus loved, which we know was actually John, okay? So it was written by John, and it's 21 chapters long, and the cool thing about the book of John, the Gospel of John, is it follows this traditional story structure formula. If you've ever taken an English class, you know that stories kind of have this arc that they follow, where there's an introduction section to the characters and the setting, and then there's this rising action where, where conflict builds and tension builds, and then it comes to the high point of the story where kind of like 
everything falls apart and then there's a rising or a falling action where things start to get resolved and then at the end there's a resolution, right? So this is this traditional formula and actually the book of John follows it like perfectly. The beginning of the book in John chapter one is called the exposition and we are set up and introduced to the main characters of the story. In John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then in 14, it says, and that word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So that's introducing Jesus. Jesus is the word. And he was with God in the very beginning. He was part of the creation story. And then he came down to this earth, descended, took on flesh, and became one of us. Okay, so we're set up with this idea of who Jesus was. And then as the chapter goes on, we're introduced to John the Baptist and we're introduced to the disciples as Jesus calls each of them. So these characters are set out in the very first chapter. And then we go to the rising action of the story of the Gospel of John, which is set in John 2 through 11. Those chapters have a series of events that arc up and scope up the um, tension of the story. And it's done with what John uh, calls the seven signs of Jesus. The seven signs of Jesus are um, where Jesus makes a declaration about himself and then he does a miracle to back it up and that's the sign. Okay, so there's seven main ones that we see in the beginning part of John. We see that Jesus turns water into wine. It's actually the only gospel that has that story in it. He heals a nobleman's son and then he heals the man at the pool of Bethesda. He feeds 5,000, he walks on water, he heals the man born blind, and then in chapter 11, the end of the rising action, he heals Lazarus, he, Lazarus, he raises him from the dead. Okay, so that's the, the end of kind of that journey, climbing the mountain of the story. And the thing is, is as Jesus does each of these miracles, as he sets it up, and he makes a declaration and does a miracle proving who he is, there's tension because the religious leaders are getting more and more angry. With each thing that Jesus does, I mean, he's doing some like crazy stuff, right? He's turning water into wine, he's healing people, he's feeding thousands, he, he's like declaring he's the king of creation by walking on water, and then he heals a man that was dead. I mean, with each one, the, re the, re the religious leaders are getting more and more angry to the point where when we get to the Lazarus story it's the final straw for them and that's actually what Ben talked about last Sunday um, when he heals Lazarus Jesus knows that it will be the final straw and he goes to Bethany to heal Lazarus knowing that it will be the end point he raises Lazarus to life knowing that it will cost him his own life and that's what's at stake in the story there. And by the time we come to the end of chapter 11, there's a full-on plot to kill Jesus. And this takes us to the high point of the story where all of the conflict hits the pink peak in chapter 12. And in this chapter, we see that Jesus triumphantly rides into Jerusalem, boldly declaring, like, I'm the king, and people are celebrating him, and it's like this high point. And for the disciples, they're thinking, man, everything is, like, looking pretty good, right? Things are up and to the right. This is, like, our success. But as we know, with the story arc, something's going to change. There's going to be a shift that occurs. And in chapter 12, the opening point of that falling action in John is where Jesus to the disciples predicts, actually, I'm gonna die, you guys. You think that like all of this is looking really awesome and up and to the right? Actually, in just a few short days, I'm gonna die. 
And he says this, in John 12, 23, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now my soul is troubled, and what can I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Verse 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And so he, through this passage, is saying, you, you guys, I'm actually, what you thought it was going to look like, it's not going to look like that. I'm going to the cross. I'm getting ready to die. But the disciples, like, this is their first real introduction to the reality of this, so they don't really get it yet, okay? So then we move to John 13 where we find Jesus celebrating the Passover meal in the upper room. And we know that this is actually the day before he's going to be crucified. But the disciples don't know that. They just think they're celebrating Passover. And Jesus starts to set out for them kind of a reality check of what's to come. And that's what happens in, in 13, where first of all, they're in the upper room getting ready to enjoy their meal. And Jesus... Um, it says he takes off his outer garment and puts a towel around his waist, and then he bends down with a bowl and he washes each of their feet. And he does that to show them what servant leadership looks like. They have in their mind that Jesus is going to be like an earthly king, you know, riding into Jerusalem. He's going to take the throne. He's going to overthrow the Romans. And he's saying, hey, guys, it's going to look completely different than what you thought. You want to know what leadership looks like? It looks like this servant, being a servant, washing, um, washing your feet. And as you know, the story goes, Peter's like, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. And then Jesus is like, if I don't wash your feet, you're not going to have any place with me. And Peter's like, wash all of me, right? Peter's doing what he does best. And so that, that whole thing unfolds. Now they're going to, now they're sitting at the table and they're enjoying their meal, okay? And in this moment, Jesus then drops another bomb on them. As he's eating the meal with them, he says, you know what? One of you is actually going to betray me. One of you that's been walking with me for three years, you're going to totally betray me. And we find out that it's Judas. He dips his um, bread in the bowl with him, and then he says, go and do what you're going to do. And he heads out. And amazingly, the disciples still don't fully get it. They're like, oh, maybe he's going to go give money to the poor in this moment, right? Like, they're still totally clueless. But then the third thing happens in John 13, where Peter is saying, Jesus, um, I don't quite know where you're going, but wherever you go, I'm going there, and um, I'm going to stand up for you no matter what. That's basically what's happening in the text. And then Jesus, Peter says, Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you. And then Jesus tells him in verse 38, will you really lay down your life for me, Peter? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you're going to disown me three times. And this is when, like, really the weight of what's happening um, is, like, realized, where the floor really begins to drop out for them in this moment. Things are starting to sink in for the disciples. Jesus has predicted his death. He's flipped the script on what kingship and leadership looks like. He's predicted that one of them is going to betray him. He said, hey, guys, I'm getting ready to leave. And then he says, Peter, you're actually going to deny me going to deny me. And here they sit in this moment, completely disrupted. 
confused, scared, disoriented, realizing that things are not going to turn out the way they thought. Things are not going to look the way that they had hoped that they were going to look. And they are freaking out. That's what's happening in this moment. They, they are feeling um, despair. They are feeling confusion. They are feeling loss. And it's in this moment, from the seven signs of Jesus to the triumphal high point to the bomb of these predictions that Jesus has dropped on them, that we come to John 14, where Jesus speaks words of comfort to his disciples. And starting in verse 1, in, verse, uh, in chapter 14, he says this to them. Just imagine yourselves in, your, in their shoes as he, as he spoke these words. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place that I'm going. And here, sitting here, they're like, what? So Thomas does what he does best. He's like, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In this moment, where they are desperately searching for answers, they're desperately searching for hope, they're searching for a path forward, for next steps, for clarity on what the future is going to hold, Jesus tells them everything that they need to know, everything that they need to know. He says, I am the way. If you need clarity for your path forward, I am the way. I am the clarity for your path forward. I am the truth. If you have doubts in your mind, things that are plaguing your thoughts, places where you don't feel like there's hope, I am the truth. He says, I am the life. If your heart is in despair, if your soul is, um, is being torn up in confusion, I'm the source of vitality for your heart and for your soul. I am the sustenance that you need in this moment. If you need direction in your steps, if you need um, peace in your thoughts, if you need hope in your heart, it's through me. It's through me. He tells them everything that they need to know in that moment. The uh, message paraphrase um, has a really cool way of describing this passage, and I just want to read it for you because sometimes it helps us to have a different perspective on a passage we've read a lot. It says this in verse 1, he says, Don't let this rattle you. You trust God, don't you? Trust me. There is plenty of room for you in my father's home. If that weren't so, would I have told you that I'm on my way to get a room ready for you? And if I'm on my way to get your room ready, I'll come back and get you so that you can live where I live. You already know the road that I'm taking. Thomas said, Master, we have no idea where you're going. How do you expect us to know the road? And Jesus said, I am the road. I am the road, also the truth, also the life. No one gets to the Father apart from me. That's the clarity that they need. That's the clarity that they need in that moment. But what's really cool here in the book of John is that not only is this a moment in the Gospel of John and the story that the disciples are walking out, um, which is key and pivotal for their journey, but it is also a key moment for the story of all of human history. 
Because not only is Jesus giving the disciples direction for their own disruptive situation, but at the same time, he's giving direction and clarity to all of humanity, to us, for our disruptive situation, the great disruption that we have all faced. And it all starts in the very beginning in the story of Genesis. So this is another zoom out moment, okay? So in the story of Genesis, what's really cool about this is Genesis starts the same way that the book of John starts. And I think that was super intentional by the author of John because he wants us to think about this story as he was writing his gospel. Because John 1.1 starts with, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was with God in the beginning, right? Does that sound familiar? Genesis 1.1 in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the story of creation. It's the story, the grand story, the grand history of how everything has been unfolding from the beginning of time. And what's also super cool here is that there's another set of sevens. Just like we see sets of sevens in the book of John with the signs and the I am statements, in Genesis, there's a set of sevens, which is the seven days of creation. If you guys remember them from Sunday school, you could rattle them off. But <laughs> simply put, the sixth day of creation is the day that God created mankind. And this is what it says. This is how God created mankind. In Genesis 1, 26 um, through 28, it says, Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Verse 31, Then God looked over all that he had made and saw that it was very good. He said that. He saw that. He created that. He looked over it and he said, All of this is very good. This is the statement that he made about creation. It was very good. It was not broken. It was not marred. It was beautiful the way that God intended it. Humans were good and beautiful the way that God intended. From the very beginning, God created humans, both male and female, in his image to mutually display the glory of God. Both were needed to display the glory of God, and they were the pinnacle of his creation. And he looked over all that he had made with the pinnacle of his creation, he said, this is very good. And not only that, but he gave them together a mandate and a calling to cultivate what he had made, to steward it and to multiply, to take his creation and to make it into something even more. That was the mandate that he gave them. So they have an identity bearing the image of God together and then a calling to live out um, this cultivation of the earth for fruitfulness, for multiplication, for goodness. This was our original created identity and calling, to embody and display the image and the glory of God and to live out the goodness that he had called us to. That was the plan. But Genesis 3 comes along, and it got really, really messed up. God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he told them they could enjoy all of his creation, but there was one caveat. They must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, he said, you will surely die. 
So God had good plans for them. He had goodness on offer for them, beautiful plans and purposes. But then the enemy comes and he tries to twist what God commanded them. He challenges God's goodness. And he says to Adam and Eve, he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He says, you will not surely die. No, no, no. Actually, if you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will be like God. To God really, so he's, he's twisting what God said. He's questioning what God said. He says, actually, if you take this path, you'll actually become the uh, God of your own life. And guess what Adam and Eve do? Do you guys know? <laughs> they take the bait. They take the bait. And it says that they took a bite of the fruit of the tree, and then the eyes of both of them were opened, yes, and they realized that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. In this moment, everything changes, but not in the way that they had expected. They were expecting up and to the right, but boom, the floor drops out from under them. Because rather than trusting God as their source, their source of goodness, their source of wholeness, their source of life. They try to do things in their own strength, their own way, trying to forge their own path to the goodness of God. And immediately they feel shame. Immediately they, they feel ashamed. They feel the need to cover up who they really are. The reality of their sin and their brokenness is revealed. They feel exposed. And what do they do? They sew fig leaves together. Worst outfit ever. Like, we got it. We got it covered. We're good. And we're like, I can only imagine what God is thinking. Like, wow, guys, this is your plan now? But really, um, and it's at this moment that sin enters the world. And sin just means missing the mark. It's, it's taking an alternate path or a detour from the path that God designed for us. Living out your way, your life in a way that's counter to the good way that God designed it. That's what sin is. And with sin, not only comes guilt, but also comes shame, covering up who you were meant to be. A lot of times we focus on the guilt aspect, like you're guilty and you're sinful and there's something wrong. But really, I think what a lot of times people experience more and more, especially in our culture these days, is a feeling of shame. They're, sh they're, they're ashamed. And so they're trying to cover themselves with all kinds of things, you know, putting on these fig leaves, cultural fig leaves, and then like walking around parading themselves like, hey, I look pretty good. No, there's shame inside of there. But that's what sin does, and that's what sin brings. Rather than living out your life in freedom and wholeness and joy, sin is now ingrained and entrenched in all of humanity. There's a covering, there's a couching, there's a holding back. They need a rescuer. They need a rescuer. And so in this moment, God sets in place a grand rescue plan for all of humanity, a mission impossible and Jesus chooses to accept. And that brings us back to the book of John in chapter three, where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It was an act of love. God's great rescue plan to restore and redeem what he had intended from the very beginning of time because his goodness is always the thing driving him. 
His love is always the thing driving him. He's on a mission to help us to get back to the goodness and the plans that he has on offer for us. And this is the story that we see playing out in the book of John. In John 10.10, where it says the thief, the enemy from the original garden, comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. It's a grand rescue plan a plan to redeem and restore God's original intent for humanity. And this is what makes Jesus' statement in John 14, 6 so profound. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the way that he paid for us was on the cross. You guys know the story. He stretched out his arms and he made a bridge for us a bridge for us, crossing a chasm that we could never cross on our own, resolving a gap between our sin and the Father that we could never cross, restoring the original plan and the garden, redeeming our broken path, things that we tried to do in our own strength, he redeemed through his death and his resurrection, proving that he is the way, the truth, and the life. But we have a choice to make. And we have a choice to make not only in the one-time decision to say yes to Jesus, which is incredibly important, but also we have a choice to make in every day of our lives, every moment of our journeys, every high and every low, we have a choice to make to acknowledge the good news of the gospel that God has good plans for us, but those plans can only be found in Jesus. The enemy is still using the same tactics that, that he did back then in the garden. He does not have a lot of new tricks in his tool belt. He twists God's goodness. He tries to offer us a counterfeit, alternate paths to God, to the way. And we respond very much like Adam and Eve did early on. We fall for it. We take the bait. We eat the counterfeit. We think that somehow we can get to God's best for our lives without God. We think that we can get to the design without the designer. Rather than trusting God as our source, we try to do things in our own strength. We try to create our own lives and cultivate our own journeys. We want the goodness of God without God. We want the kingdom of God without the king, and it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And man, we all do it in lots of different ways. We all have our things, our backup plans, where we're trying to like, you know, couch our, you know, our bets to make sure that we've got backup plans rather than going all in with the way, the truth, the life. It's not just a salvation thing, it's a lordship thing. Truly submitting to the lordship of Jesus in every facet of our lives. But we live in a society that is all about options all about contingency plans, backup plans, safety nets, diversifying our portfolio, we're afraid of losing control, rampant individualism, and it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And there's never a time in our lives that we can find out more about what we're actually leaning on than in those places of disruption, those places where the floor drops out and we have to really assess who are we leaning on? What are we leaning on? What are we trusting in? Those places of disruption reveal that. And in the story of the disciples, when Jesus went to the cross, we saw what really 
uh, mattered for them. Judas, he betrayed Jesus in that moment of disruption. Peter denied Jesus. Thomas doubted Jesus. But you know what? We're not much different. We all have our go-tos and our alternatives, but Jesus doesn't leave us with alternative routes. He isn't a way. He is the way, the way. He's it. He's it. There's a story um, from the 1500s. In 1519, there was a Spanish explorer by the name of Hernan Cortez, and he arrived in the New World. He crossed the ocean with a group of 600 men with the goal of conquering Mexico. This was his goal, the Spanish conquistadors. And um, the story goes that they arrived on the coast of Mexico, and Hernan was concerned that they weren't going to be all in with their um, mission that they had come for. And so to ensure that it happened, he ordered his men to burn all of the boats that they had arrived on. Burn the boats. No backup plans. By burning the ships, he knew that there was no turning back. It was do or die. His army was now 100% committed to doing whatever it took to succeed. There was only one path forward, no backup, all in. And I think that some of us um, need to consider if there's boats in our life that we need to burn today. What are the boats in your life that you need to just light on fire and say, "Uh uh-uh, no more, no more backup plans, I'm all in. Right here, right now, I want to just invite you to reflect on your own story and your own journey and where you're at in this moment. What are the boats that you need to burn in your life? What are you leaning on? What are you trusting in other than Jesus? What are your backup plans? Where do you feel the need to be in in charge and in control? Where are you hoping in yourself other than Jesus? Where do you feel the need to be strong and to stand up on your own two feet rather than really relinquishing control to him. I think we all have places in our lives where we haven't fully submitted to the lordship of Jesus. Um, And that's okay. That's part of the journey of walking with him as he slowly but surely leads us down the pathway of more and more surrendering to him. Thankfully, he's kind and gracious, and he doesn't just like immediately, (laughs) but more and more he leads us into maturity. Um, But I was just reminded this week of that old Christian song, I have decided to follow Jesus, you know, though none go with me, still I will follow the cross before me, the world behind me, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. You know, in my um, moment of disruption right out of college, um, where I felt like I didn't know what to do next, there was actually this really amazing opportunity that showed up for me. Um, where the church that I had been interning at, um, it was a large church in Southern California, and I had been interning there in the worship department, and um, I was offered a full-time position with the team there to um, serve, and I was like, this looks pretty promising. I'm like, yeah, this, I think this makes sense for the path that God has for my life. I mean, it, for me, it looked like the pinnacle of worship success, you know? So I said yes. I, I was like, yeah, obviously, this is a yes, and then immediately I felt no peace. I no peace at all, and I took about two days to pray through it and dis- discern with the Lord, but all I knew was he was like, this is not the path for you. Say no. So without any other options available to me, I went back to the worship pastor and I was like, no, I'm, I'm not supposed to do this and I don't know why, but it's a no. 
Um, but what was amazing about that moment as a 22-year-old where I said no out of obedience to God is it paved the way for a series of yeses for the past path that he did have for me that I never could have known in that moment. It paved the way for yes after yes after yes where he was the one leading, my leading me and, and crafting my path. Um, I couldn't see it at the time. Um, I, just, I just had to lean into him and, and into his will and into his ways for my life, trusting him. You know, in, in Psalms, we're told that God's word is a lamp into our feet and light into our path, right? It's not, a, it doesn't say it's a spotlight. I wish it was, where it was like, Psh, you know, and you just knew exactly. It's a lamp just enough to take a step and then to know what the next step is. And that's the thing about following Jesus. You have to walk close and listen and discern because he's gonna lead you step by step, but he doesn't ever really take you to a place where you're like, all right, I'll take it from here, Jesus. It comes through walking with him. But the thing is, is you don't have to be afraid because the Lord's gonna guide you. When you're leaning into him and listening, he's not gonna lead you astray. He won't lead you astray but the path is probably gonna surprise you. It's probably gonna look different than you thought, and that's actually what's kind of awesome about it. Amen? I wanna invite you to stand with me. Worship team, you can come on up. In this moment, I don't know what the Lord has been stirring in you and speaking to you, um, whether it's a very specific thing that you need to zoom in on, um, or maybe you almost like need to zoom out and look at a bigger picture of what God has been doing in your life. Um, maybe you're in a moment um, this morning of really low moment, like a valley of the shadow of death moment where you feel like the floor has dropped out from under you um, and there's like a sense of disillusionment, maybe hopelessness, um, and you feel really lost. Um, if that's the case, I want to pray for you and ask for the Lord to meet you in that moment. Um, but maybe you're like, hey, I'm good. Like maybe you're even at like a super high point, like a mountaintop point of your life. Um, it's been up and to the right for you. But maybe in that place, you've sort of been the master of your own destiny. You haven't really submitted the success of your life to Jesus. You've been the ones with the, the one with the levers of control in your life. If that's the case, I wanna pray for you as well. Because all of us, no matter where we're at in our journeys or our stories, we have to submit to Jesus. We have to trust him with our lives. Maybe you've been um, taking the bait and accepting the counterfeits to alternate paths to the goodness that Jesus has on offer for you. If that's the case, I wanna invite you this morning to um, burn those boats, man. Burn those boats. Um, Maybe you've been covering yourself up with your own figurative fig leaves, places of shame where you feel like you've got to cover and hide. If that's the case, I want to pray for you. Wherever you're at this morning, I just want to um, take a moment to pause and acknowledge that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody can get to the Father and the goodness on offer from God without him. So whether for you this is a first time yes, yes, Jesus, I am accepting you as my Lord and my Savior. Or maybe you've been walking this journey for 30 years and this is like a moment where you're like a line in the sand. I'm going to burn those boats and I'm going to go all in with Jesus. Wherever you're at, I want to pray for you this morning. Let's just open up our hearts and open up our hands as we go before the Lord. Jesus, we love you. We love you, Jesus. 
We give you our worship and our adoration and our praise, and we acknowledge that there is none like you. We worship you. You are the mighty God. You are the faithful one. You are the giver of all good things, God, and we just place you right now in your rightful place, and we say you are Lord. You are King. You are greater than anything that we could think or imagine, God. You are faithful. We love you, Jesus. For each person in this place, God, wherever they're at in their story, in their journey, God, whether they're at a place of brokenness and hopelessness, a place of failure, a place of loss, a place where they don't know what's next, I pray right now you would meet them in their, this moment, Lord. Holy Spirit, come and speak. Come and do what only you can do. Be their comforter. Be their peace. Be their advocate. Uh, Spirit of truth, come and speak your truth into their heart and life today. Lord, for those in this place who maybe things are looking really good, but they know that there are boats that they need to burn in their lives, places where they need to surrender and go all in, whatever that looks like. Surrender their success to you. Surrender their futures to you, Lord. I pray right now that they would have the courage to offer that you those areas. Just right now in this moment, uh, as those things come to mind, just in your own way, speak those out and offer them to Jesus. Jesus, we give you all the facets of our lives. We give you the places where we've tried to hold on to control. We, we give you the places where we haven't fully surrendered to you as the Lord of our life, God. We don't want any path other than the path that you have available to us, Lord Jesus. We don't accept the counterfeit. We don't accept the bait. We want you, Jesus. We want you because you are the way, the truth, and the life. In Jesus' name, we love you, Jesus. We give you all that we are, Jesus. All of the brokenness, all of the joy, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, it's yours, Jesus. In Jesus' name, have your will and have your way with our lives. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen, amen. There's a couple of things I wanna highlight to you today as we go out. The first thing is if the Lord is doing something in your heart, I wanna invite you to go and meet with the prayer team, especially if this was a first time yes for you today and you've said yes to Jesus, please go share with them that you've said yes and let them pray with you and partner with you. Also, this week, if you've never done this exercise, I want to invite you to take some time to do a five high and five low exercise. Chart it out, look at it, and then invite the Lord into that journey to reveal to you how he has been present every single step of the way. Amen? Amen.